Hello there, I'm Marina Mahadeo. Welcome to Busy Reading Books, a podcast where we'll explore the world through words, featuring some of my favourite books and authors. Hello BRB listeners, we've got an exciting offer for you. Get an exclusive 10% discount at Book Access, Malaysia's leading book retailer. Just use the code ZAFIGO10, all caps, at checkout before 6 September 2021. It can be used store-wide except during flash sales. Happy shopping! Hello everyone, it's Marina back again with another episode of Busy Reading Books, the podcast that takes you travelling around the world through books. Today, I will be talking about books that are set in a city that I know pretty well, London. Now, the city that we call London has been a major city for about 2,000 years. From ancient Roman times until today, it has been a city that everyone looks to for its influence on finance, arts and culture, education and even politics. Even if you've never been to London, you probably know what the Houses of Parliament look like, or Tower Bridge, or Big Ben, what colour London taxis are, and what colour post boxes are. You might even have heard of the famous museums like the Victoria and Albert Museum, or music venues like the Albert Hall, its parks like Hyde Park, and the theatres of the West End. It's just one of those cities that is literally iconic. I happen to know London quite well because in the mid-70s, I was a student in the UK and spent many weekends and holidays in the city. Luckily, I wasn't studying in the city because I think there would have been far too many distractions. So I would be elsewhere and then come to the city for weekends. Of course, in those days, as a student, I didn't have the money to enjoy everything the city has to offer. But there are a lot of places that you can go to very cheaply or for free. Public transport, especially buses, was pretty cheap. Museums are mostly free, unless you're going to see some special exhibition. And the parks are great open spaces where you can run around, take walks, or have picnics without much cost. And if there's one thing I miss about London, I think I miss the parks most of all, because... There's so many and, and they're so big and, you know, you you can never explore the entire uh, acreage of Hyde Park at one go. Of course, like most Malaysian students, we knew certain areas in London better than others. The area around Malaysia Hall, for instance, near Marble Arch was very popular because the canteen there served very cheap Malaysian food. And around it, in those days, there were a lot of cheap restaurants that we would go to when we were bored with the Malaysia Hall food. There was Bali Restaurant on Edgware Road, which is supposed to be Malaysian, Indonesian, Asian, whatever, you know. 40 years later, in 2018, I became a student again and started living in London again. Although my university was actually two hours away in Norwich, but I prefer to live in the city than out in little Norwich. No offense to Norwich. And so much has changed in London. When I was a young student, the only Asian food you could find were in Chinese restaurants and not very good ones. 
and Indian restaurants because somehow uh, the Brits loved curry. And you couldn't find anything in the supermarkets that you could buy to make your own food, Asian food. Like if you want to make nasi lemak or something, it was very, very difficult. But nowadays, you can find anything at all in a regular market. You don't even have to go to the Asian grocers because, you know, whether it's just ingredients or prepared meals, you can find them in a pretty normal supermarket. Like you can get laksa or biryani or even nasi lemak at Tesco, for instance, all prepared. You just have to take it home and heat it up. And of course, this means that the UK and especially London has truly become cosmopolitan. You know, its, it's population has changed in, in the last 40 years. It's much, much more diverse. You, you see so many different people in London. And in fact, it's quite hard to find anyone who's truly, truly English in London anymore. The mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, is of Pakistani descent. The porters in my apartment building are Eastern European. I go to a Pilates gym nearby to work with a Sri Lankan trainer. And after my session, I usually reward myself uh, by eating pasta at the Italian deli across the road. It's really wonderful to have this diversity. It really is because it, it just makes for a different atmosphere from the time I was a student. But... At the same time, all the iconic things that you come to UK to see have really become tourist spots. And, well, they are, they are London, but they're not London. I mean, the, the Houses of Parliament are still there. The Tower Bridge is still there. But it's only a part of London and not everything. But if you come as a tourist and stay for a short while, you'll see those bits of London and think it is London, but you won't really see the true London, which is beyond Buckingham Palace, beyond cream teas and pubs, and even pubs have changed. You know, I, I went to a pub which served Thai food, for instance. That would be unthinkable in the 70s. London is not just diverse in terms of its ethnic makeup, it's also diverse in terms of class. For instance, I was staying in Kensington, which is a fairly posh area with large homes, beautiful large homes down big avenues where aged pop stars <laughs> and broadcasters live. And, and you do actually see them walking around, but because they're old, nobody's screaming at them anymore. But at certain spots, as you walk along the high street, Kensington High Street, you can see Grenfell Tower, the one that burned down in 2017, killing 72 people mostly immigrants and poor people. So it, it's really close by. It's a short walk from the designer boutiques at Westfield Mall in Shepherd's Bush to the neighborhood of the tower. I know because I did that walk uh, soon after the fire to kind of go and pay respects, you know, to, to the people who died there. I've taken a bus ride from my area to North London to visit someone and the landscape literally changed from clean, well-maintained houses surrounded by trees to ever bleaker streets with lots of graffiti on the walls and homeless people sleeping in the open and trash and, and all that. It, it really was a very, very obvious 
change in the type of people who lived in these different parts of London. So in London, the rich and the poor aren't really very separated from each other. It's whether you choose to see it or not. And, you know, in places like India, you can't escape it. You can see the gleaming towers and the poor street people. You can't escape it. In London, you can if you're just not really looking. But if you look carefully, you can see them side by side. But if you're really interested in seeing the real London, not as a tourist, but as a Londoner, there is no better way than through books. London has been the setting for books since I don't know how long. Years and years, centuries, really. Because you can go back to Charles Dickens' books, like Oliver Twist, for instance, that helped to show the terrible conditions of the poor in the city and the homes that orphans like Oliver were sent to. And, and Charles Dickens really highlighted these type of conditions in his books and, and helped to uh, move change in the country. Then, of course, there's Arthur Conan Doyle, who made Baker Street famous because that's where Sherlock Holmes lived. I mean, if you did any trivia competition and they asked you where did Sherlock Holmes live, you know it's Baker Street because it's so famous from those books. But there are many more current books that have London as its setting, but gives you a very different view of the city that is through the eyes of its migrant population. I'm not saying that there aren't any books that are written through the perspective of a so-called native Londoner, meaning an English person. Although I do think that the migrant populations are now also native Londoners. Otherwise, why would they vote in Sadiq Khan? But I particularly like to read about the migrant experience. So I tend to choose books that are written by migrant British writers. So whether they're from South Asia or they're from Africa or China even, there are many, many uh, books like that. So one of the books that I read a long time ago when it first came out because it, it did so well, it was, I think, shortlisted for the Booker Prize, was Monica Ali's Brick Lane. Brick Lane, I went to just a couple years ago, actually, when I, I was living in London still. And um, it's now become very hipster. People go there to take photographs. It's very Instagrammable. It's very colorful. It's got many Bangladeshi, Indian, Sri Lankan restaurants and all that. But in 2003, when Monica Ali's book came out, it was still pretty poor. And many members of the Bangladeshi migrant communities live there in this area called Tower Hamlets. I visited a girls' school there a few years ago, and really I did notice that most of the students there were from migrant communities, especially South Asians. So the book is told from the point of view of Nazneen, a young Bangladeshi woman who is, through an arranged marriage, brought to the UK without much preparation, including in the English language. So let me read you an extract from it so that you get a, an idea of what Nazneen's life as a new immigrant uh, was like coming to this new country. 
Life made its pattern around and beneath and through her. Nazneen cleaned and cooked and washed. She made breakfast for Chanu, that's her husband, and looked on as he ate, collected his pens and put them in his briefcase, watched him from the window as he stepped like a band leader across the courtyard to the bus stop on the far side of the estate. Then she ate, standing up at the sink and washed the dishes. She made the bed and tidied the flat, washed socks and pants in the sink and larger items in the bath. In the afternoons, she cooked and ate as she cooked so that Chanu began to wonder why she hardly touched her dinner. And she shrugged in a way that suggested that food was of no concern to her. And the days were tolerable and the evenings were nothing to complain about. Sometimes she switched on the television and flicked through the channels looking for icy skating. For a whole week, it was on every afternoon, while Nazneen sat cross-legged on the floor. While she sat, she was no longer a collection of the hopes, random thoughts, petty anxieties and selfish ones that made her but was whole and pure. The old Nazneen was sublimated and the new Nazneen was filled with white light, glory. But when it ended and she switched off the television, the old Nazneen returned. For a while, it was a worse Nazneen than before because she hated the socks as she rubbed them with soap and dropped the pottery tiger and elephant as she dusted them and was disappointed when they didn't break. She was glad when the icy skating came no more. She began to pray five times each day, rolling out her prayer mat in the sitting room to face east. She was pleased with the order it gave to her day, and Chanu said it was a good thing. But remember, he said, and coughed away a little imaginary phlegm. Rubbing ashes on your face doesn't make you a saint. God sees what is in your heart. And Nazneen hoped it was true, because Chanu never to her knowledge prayed. And of all the books that he held in his hand, she had never once seen him with the Holy Quran. There you go. It's really evocative. It's really good at describing life for Nazneen in that very isolated estate where she had very few friends and couldn't speak to anyone who wasn't Bangladeshi. It does get a little bit more exciting, but I won't um, spoil it for you. You have to go and read it. Monica Ali has written other books since then, um, but I haven't read those, and I feel like I, I should go back and look for her other books just to see what else she talks about. Now, another Bangladeshi also features in another book that I loved, White Teeth by Zadie Smith, which came out in 2000. Actually, it was before Monica Ali, come to think of it. And that also won her many, many awards. But this time, the family lives in Wilsdon, which is in northwest London, and is friends with an Englishman and his Jamaican wife. And their children, the Bangladeshi children and the English Jamaican child, all grow up together. It's a complicated story with many characters and different strands in the story, but it can be really funny in parts. I remember, for some reason, the funny parts, especially when one of the Bangladeshi sons, and there's a pair of twin sons, 
joins a fundamentalist group called Keepers of the Eternal and Victorious Islamic Nation, or Kevin for short. I thought that was hilarious. I haven't liked Zadie Smith's later books as much, but this one really was a great debut, I thought. It was everywhere in all the bookstores, and I really had to pick it up, and, and I really loved it. I've also just finished a book lent to me by a friend called Home Fire by a British-Pakistani writer called Camilla Shamsi, which is a reworking of the story of Antigone set in a modern day in London with the cloud of terrorism hovering above. It's the tragic story of two sisters who both love the same man, but he's the son of a powerful man who could destroy their family. It's, it's quite uh, complicated in, in some ways, but there are many threads to it, but they all link together. And that was the simplest summary of the plot that I could give. But in fact, it's, it's many layered. And the action moves between London and the Middle East and Pakistan. But I think you have to be prepared for an ending that is not exactly cheerful. But it, it's still a gripping story. I guess you can tell that I really like books by women who are also British migrants. One of those that I've really enjoyed lately is the co-winner of the Booker Prize in 2019, which was Girl, Woman, Other by the Anglo-Nigerian writer Bernadine Evaristo. It's about 12 women, mostly black, but of differing backgrounds and ages, living mostly in London, although they do go off elsewhere as well in, in their lives, like to America, for instance. Its main idea is exploring how our lives intersect in so many different ways that we can't be put into simple categories such as race and class. For example, a black woman may have more in common with a working-class white woman than with a wealthy woman of colour. It also looks at how we other one another by finding ways that we are different instead of where we are the same. So you know how you might look at another woman and think about you know, her station in life, how wealthy or how poor she is, forgetting all the time that as women, we actually share a lot of things in common. Now, apart from novels and things set in London, there are also lots of non-fiction books and books about London, actually, which are quite interesting. I've been listening to an audio book called The Last London by Ian Sinclair. Ian Sinclair is actually a filmmaker originally, so you can imagine that his books are quite filmic in that he describes scenes very well. What he likes doing is to walk around different parts of London and describe what he sees there and more using a device called psychogeography, although he himself doesn't really like the term. Basically, it's writing, describing of urban environments as you walk around them, whether it's the buildings, the people, the flora and the fauna, um, the weather, anything. It, it's you walk around and you look around and then you describe. But, you know, he does it in a way that is really quite um, captivating. So in one chapter, for instance, he describes dances on a beach 
one of whom is wearing a bright yellow suit. So he keeps talking about this canary yellow suit and how this person, I guess it's a man, is dancing around on the beach in it and how arresting that, that vision is. In another one, he walks in a park and sees a man on a bench holding his head in his hands. Maybe a homeless person or just someone sad. So if you don't think you're ever going to get to London anytime soon, um, which is very unlikely because of all these restrictions and everything, this book, I think, is a good substitute for seeing the city from the ground level up. In fact, Sinclair has written several books about walking around London. He's a dedicated flaneur, which is a word I learned when I was at university, a person who saunters around observing society. I'm sure there are many, many books set in London or about London, but really I think there is a huge gap there because given that there were so many Malaysian students in London or in the UK at one time, during my time there was something like 16,000 and we were one of the largest groups of students in the UK. What I'm really wishing for is someone to write a novel about Malaysian students in London, especially during the 70s. Uh, because um, they're very interesting, you know, you basically transplant all these um, young people from not necessarily the cities, from, you know, kampongs and things all over Malaysia, and then you put them in the UK. You know, for the boys, one of the first things they did was to grow their hair. So I think that would make an interesting story. So that's it for this month. Look out for next month's episode. But meanwhile, I hope you enjoy listening to my thoughts about books on London. And I hope you will travel to London through your own books. If you know of any more interesting books set in London, do let me know. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to check out zafigo.com for more travel inspiration. Until next time.